For those who don't know me, my name is John Chavez. Uh, you probably hear an accent. Sometimes it's hard to tell um, because I'm from Peru. The Lord saved me here uh, in this church. Um, I used to live in Arizona. I moved from Peru to live here, and I was in Arizona. I was homeless. I was living in my car, and I met some people at my sister's wedding in Peru, and they are part of this church. And one of them is Joe Barnes, and he's in Peru with us. And he um, and a group of guys, along with Stephanie Gordon over there, uh, they invited me to live here in Mississippi. So I took my car and all my clothes were already there. I didn't have to pack. So I moved all the way here and, and Grace Community Church opened their arms to me. I was an unbeliever. And they saw beyond my skin color, beyond my language, and they loved me. And then the Lord saved me. I was convicted by them, by brothers and sisters here, to see that they love Jesus, and I didn't. And the Lord saved me. And as soon as the Lord saved me, this community church got rid of me. They sent me back to my country. They were, they were praying that the Lord would save, save me and then send me back. And the Lord heard their prayers. The Lord saved me. And now I'm back in my country with Joe. Joe actually was the one that said, hey, brother, we need to go to Peru to plant churches. I said, no, well, why would I go there? Think about it. My people want to come to the States to have a better life. Why would I go back? But the Lord called me, and I felt like I have to do it. If I don't, I disobey my Lord. So we've been there now, what, six years, almost six years. And I wanted just to, to introduce myself. I'm married to Rachel Chavez. We have two kids, Judah and Isabella. And we have one more week, and then we're going to be going back to Peru to do the work of the Lord. This morning, I want to preach to you a, a sermon titled The Victorious Suffering of Christ. And for that, I please invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going, I'm going to be preaching from verse 18, but we're going to read from verse 13. Verse 18 was a verse that really showed me the glory of the cross, the glory of Christ, His, His sacrifice for us. So I'm very excited to preach this verse to you because this church taught me to love the gospel. When I was here, I remember going out to parks and neighborhoods and knocking the people's door and, and talking to people in parks and, and sharing the gospel. Many of you, or some of you, taught me how to do it. I remember going out with Jay Grisham and I would just listen to him, how we'll do it, and I want to do it. Going with other brothers to neighborhoods and parks. And I was like, man, I need to preach the gospel. I need to tell these people the good news. And I learned to do it. And that's what I want to preach to you, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This church loves the gospel. And I want you to, to hear the gospel again. Every time we preach in Peru, we ask people to stand up every time we read God's word. So I'm going to ask you to do that so I can feel like I'm at home. So please stand up as we read God's word. We're going to read from verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to read all the way to verse 18. This is God's word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slender, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Please be seated. What comes to your mind when you think about suffering? Let me help you with that. Do you think about pain, agony, tears, afflictions, trials, sorrows, misery, glory, victory? Probably not, huh? But brothers and sisters, for the Christian, suffering and victory should be synonymous. I still remember when I read my first book as a Christian. Before the Lord saved me, I never read a book in my life. I hated reading. And I don't know why some people consider it a gift when somebody gives you a book. But when the Lord saved me, He changed my desires. I remember living in the living room of Rollins Gordon. And he had this small bookshelf. And I saw his books. He had a few of them. And I saw this little tiny book called North Korea. So I picked it up. That was the first time I read a book. And I sat down again to read it. And I read it in tears. This book tells us the stories of martyrs, people that die because of their faith in North Korea. There was this particular story that made me weep. The Communist Party took some Christians and their kids and they wanted to kill them. But before they did that, they asked the parents, renounce your faith, forsake Christ, and you will be spared. They said no. They took the, their, their kids and they prepared them to be hanged. They put the ropes around their necks and they told the parents, renounce your faith and your kids will be spared. The parents looked at the kids and said, we love you, we will see you in heaven in a couple of minutes. And the kids died quietly. And then they put the parents on the floor, one by one, laying on the ground. And they brought this big steam steam roller. And they said, renounce your faith and you will be spared. And those Christians said no. And the steam roller began to roll and crash their bodies. I couldn't imagine being the last person and hearing the, the bones of my brothers and sisters cracked, torn apart. But they didn't renounce their faith. And I said, why? It would be easy to say, hey, I, I don't believe in Christ anymore. Just let me go. But they, they didn't. And what was more shocking to me is that they were singing a hymn. I said, how? Well, what kind of crazy person goes to their death singing? I've seen people suffering. I remember I was 12 years old. And so many in my neighborhood caught two thieves breaking in somebody's house. They caught them and they tied them up into a pole and then began to beat them up. I was 12 years old. There were a bunch of kids watching this. They brought, up, they brought bushes and they put bushes around them and they were going to burn them alive. And they were begging for their lives. As they were, beating, they were uh, being beaten up, hitting 
one after another, everybody. They put the bushes around them and then set them on fire. And these people were begging for their lives. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I never do it again. But the police came on time and rescued them. So why these people are crying and begging not to be killed, but these people are marching to their death singing? What makes the difference? And these people were suffering because they did something evil. Just because they were Christians. So what makes a difference? And the difference is the gospel. The difference is that they believe the gospel. They believe in Jesus Christ crucified. That's the difference, brothers and sisters. They suffer because they believe the gospel. The recipients of this letter were persecuted because of their faith. And although Peter encourages them with many things, at the center of these many things is the gospel. Peter brings up the gospel over and over and over again. And brings persecution, suffering over and over again. Look at chapter 1. Let's look at who Peter is writing to. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these people, all these places, were places in Asia Minor, modern Turkey now. And notice how Peter calls these people, exiles, exiles, sojourners, pilgrims. And that's what we are, brothers and sisters. We are heading toward the celestial city, to our home. This is not our home. This is a big hotel where we are staying for just a short time. We're marching to the celestial city where Christ is seated. The Christian, brothers and sisters, is a pilgrim. This is the status of the church of Christ. So Peter is writing to these exiles because they were suffering. And look at, look at verse 6 in chapter 1. And this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials, very kinds of trials. Maybe insulted. Maybe beaten up. Maybe they were denied some privileges as citizens. So they were going through a lot of trials. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Keep yourself or keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, they, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice something. They were called evildoers. Why would a Christian be called an evildoer when they are the ones that live holy and peaceful lives? The moment you preach against sin, against the culture, you will be called an evildoer. And please notice that this persecution wasn't happening online. Okay? They weren't being persecuted in Facebook, on a blog post. And they weren't being persecuted because they were sharing to the death their eschatological views or their church's confession of faith. No, they were persecuted because they love Jesus. Because they believe in Jesus Christ. And they were proclaiming Christ as King. But nowadays we see people fighting online for third degree theological issues in the Christian faith. Those keyboard, keyboard theologians, that's what they call them, keyboard theologians, they don't bring anything into the kingdom of God. Don't be like that. Don't be a little kid playing with toys. Be a man and fight for the gospel. These people were fighting for the gospel. 
because of Jesus Christ. So they were suffering. Look at chapter 3, verse 13, or verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. They were suffering, brothers and sisters. And Paul mentions again that in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they're suffering. But over and over again, what does Paul or Peter does? He talks to them about the gospel. Look at chapter 1. And verse 18 and 19, he tells them that they've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, more precious than gold and silver. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live righteousness. You see, the gospel over and over again. The gospel, brothers and sisters. That is what I, what's going to hold you tight in hard times. It's the gospel. So let me ask you this. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? And I don't mean that you just know some facts about it. But do you really know? In your heart of hearts, you know that you know the gospel. It's so easy to have factual facts in our minds, but don't really believe it in the heart. So do you know the gospel? And even if you do, you need to hear it over and over again. You need to hear the gospel being preached to you again. So I have five headings for you this morning. That's right. Five headings. Last time, one of your pastors told me that I preached too short. My sermon was too short. So I said, all right, I got you. So it's his fault. I have five headings for you. Number one, the sufficiency of his suffering. The sufficiency of his suffering. Notice, for Christ also suffered once for sin. Look, look at the first word, for. Peter now is going to explain what he said previously. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For, because Christ also suffered. What Peter is telling us is that the suffering of Christ was the plan of God. And this is what Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2. That it was the plan of God before time for Jesus to suffer. The suffering of Christ wasn't a surprise to God. It was what it was planned, planned from all eternity. That means that your suffering is God's plan. Your suffering is God's plan. God planned for you to suffer. That is the Christian faith. For Christ also suffered. Christ, Christ and I'm sorry to tell you this, Christ is not his name. Maybe some of you thought that was his name. It's not his name, nor his last name. It's a title. It's a title that means anointed one or choice, choice, chosen one. There were many men in the Old Testament that were called anointed. They were set apart to do the work of God, but those anointed men were types. The point is to the anointed one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sin. Peter now is portraying our Lord Jesus as the example of suffering. He's the great sufferer. He is the man of sorrows. And because he suffered, you will suffer. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, listen to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You have been called to suffer. The Christian faith is not your best life now. The Christian faith is not a beach house. It's not a vacation every day. The Christian life is not all about roses and butterflies. It's about suffering. The Christian faith is a suffering faith. Listen to Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It has been granted to you. It has been given to you. It's a gift of God. It's His inheritance. He has given you suffering, not just your faith to believe. So if you despise suffering, guess what? You are despising your Lord. You are despising your calling. You are despising His inheritance. So Christian, embrace your suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sin. Once. That's it. Once for sin. And Peter is contrasting here the sacrifice of Christ with a yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. You all know this. Once a year, the priest had to bring a lamb and kill it in the Holy of Holies. The temple was divided in two. You have the holy place and the Holy of Holies. And by the way, what a frightening job that would have been to be a priest. Because if you do something wrong, the Lord kill you right there in the moment. So he had to bring an animal and kill it for the sins of Israel. A lamb had to die in the place of Israel. And they had to do it yearly. A matter of fact, actually, they, they, they brought offerings every day. But once a year, there was this day of atonement, the big one. Okay? And they had to do it yearly. Why? Because the sacrifice of those animals was not enough. Listen to Hebrews 10.4. For it's impossible for the blood of lambs and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. It's impossible to take away sin. Imagine that we meet every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. We sing, we pray, and instead of celebrating the Lord's Supper, we tell the, the deacons, I bring them in, and they bring the lamb. And we, we put it up here, and one of your pastors kill the animal. Have you ever seen one being killed? I have in Puno. They kill it right there in front of the kids. And everybody's watching, no problem. That lamb doesn't make a sound. And you see blood all over it. That lamb doesn't make a sound. So imagine that we doing that year after year, Sunday after Sunday. The sacrifice of animals only covered the sins of the Israelites momentarily. It did, not, it did not take it away. Kind of like when your, your wife asks you to sweep the, the floor, and you pick up the rag, and you put the garbage in there. Kind of like that. It's not being taken away, right? It's only being covered. It wasn't enough. The constant sacrifice of those animals was a reminder of two things. Their sins were still very present before God. It wasn't removed. And because their sin was very present before God... That means that his wrath is not satisfied. The wrath of God is still on them. So why would God install that sacrificial system? And the answer is very simple and a glorious one. To point us to Christ. 
Every spotless and perfect lamb of the Old Testament point us to the greatest and final lamb. This is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus Christ, what did he say? All your kids know it. There was a time where every single kid was memorizing John 1, 29. You remember that? You know it? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those lambs point us to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And by one sacrifice, he puts away sin. Hebrews 9, 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. How is this possible? How can one sacrifice of himself deliver me from the eternal pains of hell? How can one man, one sacrifice, absorb the whole red-hot wrath of God? The answer is because he is the God-man. He is the God-man. He's not just a man. Not just a man suffered for you. He was the God-man. Stephen, listen to the, the Puritan Stephen Charnock. He said, we must reckon the value of Christ's sacrifice according to the union of the divine with the human nature. For by the personal union, the dignity, the divine dignity, was conferred upon the sufferings of his human nature. What he is saying is that what make Jesus Christ sacrifice an infinite price for sin, it was his divinity. His divinity added infinite value. That's why there is only salvation in the God-man. There is no salvation and only a man in the God-man. Those religions who believe that Jesus is not God in the flesh, there is no salvation in them. Only there is salvation in the Christ-man. Now, Christian, would you trust your works or would you trust the once and for all sacrifice of Christ? Would you trust your works? Would you trust what you're doing? And you know what? We do this often. We trust our own works daily. Let me ask you something. When you sin, are there times where you don't run to, to God and ask forgiveness? Are there times where you read your Bible so that you can feel good and then you can ask God to forgive you? Are there times when you try to behave well in your house so that you can feel good and then you go ask God to forgive you? Do you do that? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because you're trusting yourself. Because you think that you are good with God because of you. Or there are times or days when you feel that you haven't seen much and you feel good with yourself. Guess what? You're trusting your works. But when you sin, you feel like your relationship with God has come to an end. You know why you feel like that? Because you're trusting your works. But why would you trust your works? Trust in the once for all sacrifice of Christ. One sin, uh, one payment, and that's it. So trust in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Now why did God, or why did Christ suffer? Why did he suffer? This leads me to my second heading. The reason of his suffering. The reason of his suffering. Why did Jesus Christ suffer? For Christ also suffered once for sin. Once for sin. Peter is not putting the suffering of the believers in Asia Minor at the same level with the sufferings of Christ. That's not what he's doing. 
He's not saying, hey, Christians, you're suffering, guess what? Christ also suffered. No, it's not at the same level. Suffering of Christ was very different than those Christians. And we can see this in Gethsemane. You remember, before he was crucified, did Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane singing hymns like those Christians I told you at the beginning. Was he singing? Was he happy? Did he say, wow, I'm about to suffer for God's sake? No, right? There was something else going on there. The Bible tells us that he was sweating blood. That his soul was in distress. Why? Because something different was about to take place. So their suffering and Jesus' suffering is no the same. Those Christians were in suffering for the sins of others. Meaning, their suffering was not a sacrifice to atone for, their, for the sins of others. Christ died for your sins, Christians. This is the reason why He died. Listen, He didn't die because He thought you were worthy. He didn't die because... He simply loved you. And you know what is the problem with many Christians today? They have romanticized the gospel. We do that sometimes. We have turned the gospel into a cheesy love story. And we want to make everything about the love of Jesus toward the sinner. We present a red cheeks Jesus. Weak Jesus. A beggar sometimes. One time, uh, a very well-known pastor put an example of how ridiculous it is to tell people that God loves them, and that's why they, he dies. He said this, imagine, imagine you, young ladies, you're, you're running, let's say, on a bridge, okay? You like to walk, or you like to go for a, running, for a run, and then this crazy man approaches you, and he says, hey, Sarah, or hey, Christy, I love you. You say, what? I love you, he says. And you're like, who is this crazy man? And you begin to walk a little bit faster and run a little bit faster. And he says, no, no, listen, listen. I really love you. I love you so much that I'm going to die for you. And he jumps off the bridge and dies. Let me ask you something. Did his love accomplish something? Would that lady think that he's crazy? Yes. But that's what we do when we tell people, Jesus died because he loved you so much. Well, my mom loves me. She, she doesn't die for me. She doesn't have to. You see what is the problem? We present a weak gospel. We present a beggar. Christ died for sins. This is the reason why he died for sins. Not only external sins, but also internal. Not only sins of the body, but also the sins of the mind. But not for his own. He was sinless. He died for the sins of others. Christ died for your sins. And this is why God sent a Savior. He didn't just send a teacher, a good example, a fine lawyer, just a prophet, a spiritual counselor. He didn't send that. He sent a Savior because that's what is your greatest need. Salvation from your sins. He sent a Savior to satisfy your greatest need. Christ suffered for your sins. And this tells us how wicked we are. Think about it. It took God to pay for your sins. Another man couldn't, couldn't do it. An angel couldn't do it. It had to be God. Why? Because your sins are so horrible before the sight of God that God had to pay. Don't tell me you're a good person. 
Don't tell me you're a good person. You need to understand the gravity of your sins. We don't just make mistakes, errors. And I hear people talking about sin like that. I just made a mistake. No, that was a mistake. That was sin. That was sin. Don't take your sins lightly, Christian. Your sins are an abomination to God. And remember this. When you're tempted to sin, you should remember the price of your forgiveness. One time I was sharing the gospel to this guy. And I told him that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And he said, well, if that's the case, and then let's sin. After all, we are saved by grace, right? We don't have to do absolutely anything. And I looked at him and I said, you don't get it. You don't understand. You think I want to do those things that put my Jesus in the cross? You think I want to sin willingly? You don't get it because you don't have a new heart. Why would I want to do those things that took my Jesus to the cross? That would mean that I don't love him. You see, maybe you should think about that. I'm about to do the very things that put my Jesus to the cross. Maybe that helped you with killing your sin. For Christ died once for sins. Now for the sins of whom did he die? Let's look at the third point. The nature of his death. The nature of his death. Substitutionary. The death of Christ was substitutionary. For Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, meaning Jesus Christ. A righteous person is one who is conformed to God's standard. Meaning a sinless person, a perfect person, spotless. And this is what the scriptures tells us about our Savior. He was and is without sin. You remember what he said to his enemies. Which one of you convicts me of sin? None of you will dare to say such a thing, right? At the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Notice, he was asking for forgiveness of sins for other people, not for himself. Usually when somebody is about to die, a Christian is about to die, what does he do? He confesses his sin. Right? But Jesus is not doing that. He's asking for forgiveness of sin for other people, not for his own, because he had known. Peter calls Jesus Christ in Acts 3.14, holy and righteous. Look at chapter 2 and Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Sinless, perfect. That righteous died for, instead of, or in place of, the unrighteous. The unrighteous is the opposite of a righteous person. A lawbreaker, a sinner, a transgressor, an ungodly. A worker of iniquity, you and me, we are monsters of iniquity. We drink sin like we drink water. And even that is true of us being Christians. I traveled to South Carolina this last weekend. And I had to take an Uber. And the driver said, what are you doing in South Carolina? I said, I came for a seminar on expository preaching. And he said, yeah, Tony Evans is coming to my church, he said. I said, okay, 
And then I said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, how, how long ago? How long did you, or when did you become a Christian? And he said, long time ago. I said, okay, how did that happen? It just happened. I said, okay, there's something wrong here. Something, something is, is, is not clicking in his mind. So I said, okay, let's say you die today. You think you'll go to heaven or hell? And he said, I'll go to hell. I'll go to heaven. And I said, really? But what makes you say that? And he said, because I'm a good person. That's what he said. I'm a good person. I read my Bible. I go to church. I'm a good person, he said. And I said, no, sir, you are not a good person. I brought a lot of God before him. And I said, you are not a good person. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're trusting your own works. A Christian should never trust. He doesn't trust his own works. But you are trusting your own works. Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus didn't die for good people. Oh, and I, for, I forget to, to, to say. He, he, he turned around. He said, are you a good person? And I said, no, I'm not a good person. And then he turned around again. And he said, and you're a pastor? <laughs> I didn't know if I should laugh or smack him in the face. <laughs> Jesus didn't die for good people. For, for good people. But nowadays, churches don't want to preach the sinfulness of men. I grew up in church. My mom has been a Christian since she was very young. She always took, took us to church. But I never heard a sermon on the depravity of men. Because it's not popular. Because they say that people will be scared and they will leave our churches and never come back. Things are backwards today, brothers and sisters. They think that telling men that they are sinners is not a loving thing to do. But think about, think about that. Is it not better to tell them that they are sinners and maybe the Lord can use it and convict them and bring them to salvation? Wouldn't that be better than for them to hear those piercing words at the last day? Depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. Wouldn't it be better for them to hear it from our lips? Than to hear from Jesus Christ. And many people will hear those words on the last day. And I tremble that it will be one of you. I tremble that it will be one of you. That you will be on the other side. Man is wicked. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, None is righteous. None are one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one. Your neighbor is not seeking for God. Oh, but he's a good person. No, he's not. He's not seeking after God. He hates God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. You see, all. It doesn't say all, but you. You, you, you are a good person. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Worthless. Listen to the words of Paul. Worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalm 51 5 says that we are sinners from our mother's womb. Our children are not little angels, they're little devils, they're serpents. 
If, if they were stronger than us, they would kill us. And that happens even when babies, don't they want you watch or something and they're fussing about it? If they would be stronger, they will kill you right there. The righteous die for the unrighteous. It's important you understand that you are the unrighteous. Because what is coming later? Later, Paul is gonna, Peter is going to tell us that Jesus brought us to God. And that won't be good news until you understand that you are a sinner. The righteous die for the unrighteous. And in context, Peter is referring to those who he's writing to. I don't think Peter is saying that Christ died for every single unrighteous human being that ever existed. I don't think that's Peter, what Peter is doing. He's identifying his readers as unrighteous. Why? Because notice, he says that Jesus Christ brings us to God. If Christ died for every single unrighteous human being, then all of them will be brought to God. But that is not true. There are some people in hell right now. If Jesus died for every single unrighteous human being and didn't bring all of them to God, then his sacrifice was not sufficient, right? He died for everybody. He tried to save everybody. But sadly, some of them went to hell. Well, was it sufficient or not? Did they have to add something and they fail at that? If Jesus died for every single unrighteous human being, and some of them are in hell, then how can I be sure that I will be safe in the last day? If Jesus Christ for everybody, He died for everybody just as much as He died for the church, and then how can I have assurance that I won't go to hell tomorrow? I'm going to have to do something else, right? I can just trust Jesus because look, Christ died for those who are in hell. And they are in hell, so how can I be sure that I won't end up there? i got to do something else on top of Jesus' sacrifice. You see the problem here? That gives us a weak Savior. It gives us no assurance whatsoever. But I believe in a Savior mighty to save. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. He's not trying to save people. He's saving people. And He doesn't need your help. All He, all he needs from you is your sin. The righteous die for the unrighteous. This is substitutionary atonement. And this doctrine has helped me understand the gospel even more. Ezekiel, 20, uh, Ezekiel 18, 20 says, The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6, 23, The wages of sin is death. The justice of God demands satisfaction. He will not let you go. Exodus 34, 7 says that by no means God will clear the guilty. Whoever is guilty must pay for their sins. Every time I share the gospel, I ask people, what are you going to do to be safe? I expose them before the law of God and show them they are sinners and that they are under the judgment of God. So I ask them, what are you going to do to be safe? And the most common answer is, I will, ask to, I will ask God to forgive me. I will ask God to forgive me. And every time I hear that, I create a scenario where there are judges in Puno. And what I'm about to tell you is what I heard from a brother. I remember going to share the gospel with him. And he told these people, 
that they're, let's say you are a judge, okay? And somebody committed a crime and they, this man is brought to you, judge. And this man says to you, I'm sorry, judge. I will never do it again. Please forgive me. Would you let him go? Would you let him go? And the other says, no, if you're a righteous judge, right? So I heard this from this brother when he was sharing the gospel. And I said, man, that is genius. I'm going to use now that. I'm going to use it every time I share the gospel. So that's what I do. I said, you're a judge, a righteous judge in Puno. You're going to let him go? And sometimes they say, yes, because I'm, I'm forgiving. No, you're a wicked judge. I'm thankful that you're not a judge in Puno. And then they notice that they can't let them go. So I said, okay, what are you going to do to be saved? You know that asking for forgiveness won't save you. Come on, give me something else. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to start going to church. Well, let's imagine you are a judge. And then I go all over again with the same thing. And then they realize, okay, that doesn't work. Okay, give me another one. Come on. You got this. You got this, buddy. And they give you excuses after excuses, reasons after reasons. And then you kill them with the judge scenario. And then they are like, okay, there's nothing I can do. And that's where you want, to, you want them to be. Where they are grasping nothing. When they see that they are desperate, there's nothing I can do. What can I do then? And I love when they ask me that question. I say, oh, you pay for your sins and go to hell. Or somebody else pay for you. Somebody who is not in debt with the justice of God. Somebody without sin. And they usually ask, who? Who can do that? And I usually leave that to the very end. I, I, I make them suffer a little bit. See, God in His infinite mercy, He provided a substitution to pay in your place. This is substitutionary atonement. He dies in your place. He dies so that you can be forgiven. He dies in your place. That means that Jesus Christ on the cross, He was treated like the sinner that you and I are. He was treated like a criminal, a liar, a thief, adulterer. A drunkard, an idolater. He was counted as a sinner. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And, his, and with his wounds we are healed. He's dead for your life. Now think about this. He died while you were a sinner. He took your place while you were a sinner. Right before I give them the, the good news, I said to, to them, you pay and you go to hell or somebody else pays for you. And they said, okay, who can pay for me? And, then, and if they are with somebody else, I will look at his friend and say, hey man, can you pay for him? He said, no, I will never pay for him. And I said, that's right, because you need somebody to pay for you too. And because you don't love him. You don't love him enough. He wouldn't even die for his own friend. But guess what? Jesus Christ died for his enemies. Jesus Christ died for his enemies. Jesus Christ died to save us. God the Father gave his only son for evil people like us. I have a five-year-old. He's about to be six. 
I love you very much, but I will never keep him for you, for any one of you. Even if you love me to the point of death. I'm sorry, I, I, I will never do that. But God did. He offered up his son for his enemies. None of you were asking to be saved. God died, Christ died when you were his enemies. Now, what is our response to a savior like that? What is our response to somebody who died for us? Second Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for you so that now you may live for him. Put aside your dreams. Toss them in the garbage. If they are not in line with God's plan, brothers and sisters, that's a betrayal to Jesus Christ. He died. He died for you so that you may live for him. So live for his glory, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Sometimes we get so comfortable with our Christianity. We find a good church. I have a good job. My kids are obedient. And then we settle. We feel we're comfy. And we don't want to speak up the truth. Today, more than ever, we need to speak the truth. The wicked, the ungodly is being very bold. And he wants you to celebrate their sins. But we stay calm. We don't say anything. We are soft sometimes. Is that the example that we read in the scriptures? Is that what our forefathers did? No, brothers and sisters. Please, don't be comfy in your Christian life. Live for Him who died for you. Live for His glory. Proclaim His truth, even if that causes you your job. The hatred of your family. Jesus Christ is worthy. I hope we are understanding a little bit more the gospel. And so far we have seen the sufficiency, the reason, and the nature of his suffering. Let's look at the foreheading. The achievement of his suffering. The achievement of his suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ but brought us to God. Now before we take a look at this, let me ask you something. Was the death of Christ the only thing needed to bring us to God? I'm going to read one more time. Was the death of Christ the only thing needed to bring us to God? You're nervous to answer, huh? Oh, is that a trick question? No. It wasn't the only thing necessary for you to be brought to God. He also had to live a sinless life for you in your place. You see, God demands a sinless life from every person. Only a sinless person, we could dwell with Him. And that's what He demands from every single human being that ever existed. But men have transgressed God's law and acquired for themselves a punishment. Now God demands a payment for the transgression plus a sinless life if any is to dwell with him. You can look at it like this. Say you borrow money from a bank and you have to pay it off in 10 months. 
But if you, pay, if you don't pay it off, they will charge you a fee. Let's say you are behind your payments and your fee now is huge. Okay? Now you have to pay what you borrow plus the fee. Right? You can't come to the bank and say, hey, here is the money for the fee. We're good now. No, they're going to say. That's just for the fee. You still have to pay us for the money you borrow. This is what Jesus Christ did for you. He paid for your fee, for breaking God's law by dying on the cross, plus what you owe to God, a seamless and perfect life. And how does He accomplish that? By obeying God's law in your place. He obeys so that by faith, He can impute His righteousness into your account, His obedience into your life. This is the doctrine of justification. And I'm going to put it in a simple way. I visited it a long time ago before I was sent off to the mission field. Actually, it was just a couple months later after I was saved. I went to Stuttgart and I met with this old lady. Uh, I can't remember her name. But her and her husband, very old people, they were there. And, and I was telling her that I... It was something new for me to hear the doctrine of justification. It was very beautiful. So she said, well, let me explain to you in a little bit of simple way so you can get it. I said, yes, ma'am. So she brought two books before me. She put one book right here and another book right here. And she said, okay, this book right here on your right is the book of Jesus. It's the record of everything that he has done. And he opens it, God opens it up and what he's going to see. Say, I said, only good things, right? Wow, obedient. Mm. Oh, wow. He is worthy to be with me. But then God opens up your book with all the records. What is he going to see? I said, a lot of sin. A bunch of it. That's right. God looks at your records and he says, huh, you can never dwell with me. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you and send you to hell. And then she said, but when you trust in the finished work of Christ, this is what happens. And she switches the books. This. And she said, now you have the book of Jesus, but on top of it is your name. And then your book on top of it is the name of Jesus. He's going to look at your book with your name on it and what he's going to see, she said. She said, he's going to see all the obedience of God, of Jesus Christ. I said, that's right, she said. So God is going to say, wow, you can live with me now. And then she's go, he's going to look at Jesus' book and what he's going to see. He said, my sins. That's right. That's right. So God looks at your book and says, Jesus Christ, okay, Jesus, you're going to pay. I'm going to have to crush you and go up with that. That is imputation. God imputes into you Jesus' life. So that when God looks at you, what does he see? A perfect and seamless man, seamless woman. But it's not your righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It came from the outside. It was just granted to you, imputed to you. And that was needful for you to come to God. Jesus Christ had to pay your fee. He had to pay with his life. Because you have broken God's law. But on top of that, He gave you a perfect life. 
so that you can be with Him. So once Jesus Christ lives a perfect life and dies for you on the cross and arises from the dead, He can bring you to God. And God says, yes, of course, come. You are righteous. You are righteous. This is important for us to understand the gospel. There's no great news, brothers and sisters. When I learned that doctrine, I said, how is this possible? That a sinner like me, God can say of me, you're perfect now. You're perfect, my child. How? Because of Christ. This is great news, brothers and sisters. Jesus brought us to God. This implies a previous separation. Isaiah 59 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. God is so holy and so purified that He can dwell with sinners. The moment you sin, you're separated from Him. The moment that, that Adam sinned, our representative head, the moment he died, all of us were separated from Him. Your children are not born into the family of Christ. They are not born Christians. They are not Christians. They are separated from God. You were born separated from God. And because man is separated from God, his wrath is upon the sinner. Listen to the words of John. John 3, 36 is the word of Jesus, actually. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen to this. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say the wrath of God will come upon him, right? It says remains on him. That means that it was always there. Wherever the sinner goes, the wrath of God goes after him. The sinner dies and the wrath of God takes a hold of him and sends him to hell. If you haven't trusted Jesus, look up. Because there is a wrath on top of your head. And it's following wherever you go. It's there. And God is separated from God. His face is not shining upon the sinner. And on top of that, his wrath is kindled against him. This is why Jesus had to die. Jesus, with his, with his substitutionary atonement, he puts an end to the separation between you and God. Jesus brings you to God. And this is the greatest blessing of the gospel. The greatest blessing of the gospel. Listen to me. The greatest blessing of the gospel is not the forgiveness of your sins. The greatest blessing of the gospel is not salvation from hell. It's not heaven. It's not eternal life. It's not justification. It's not adoption. It's not glorification. You know why? Because you could have all of those things without God. I remember I had a co-worker when I used to work for a poor person. And he always called himself a Christian. But nothing in his life told me that he was a Christian. He will listen to wicked songs. But he said, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. So he said, listen to me. Let's say God, and I, I heard this from a preacher. Let's say, let's say God, God says to you, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you heaven, eternity. 
eternal life. I'll forgive your sins. I will adopt you into my family. And I will give you heaven. And on top of that, I will bring all your friends. The ones that you love the most. And on top of that, all your children, your wife, everybody. You're going to have health forever, riches. They can never be spent. Riches forever. I'm going to give you all of that in heaven. But I won't be there. I ask him, would you take that offer? And he said, yes. He said, yes. And if you say yes, I'm going to tell you the same thing I said to him. You are not a Christian. You don't love God. Don't tell me you love God. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Would you take him? Would you take him? What if God says, you know what? It's just going to be you and me, nobody else. Nobody else. A heaven empty. Just you and me forever. Would you take it? Would you take it? And if you wouldn't, you need to wonder. You need to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? You know why? Because that's what Christ achieved for you. God, he gives you God. And maybe we should begin to tell that to people every time we share the gospel. I did it one time at a parking lot over there in Jackson, uh, outside of the library. I shared the gospel to this guy, and then I said, you know what Christ is going to give you when you repent and put your trust in Christ? God! He looked at me and was like, I already have God. It's like, you, you see the problem here? We're in the South where everybody thinks that they have God. And when I think about the South, I only thought about Mississippi, but it's bigger. I'm in South Carolina. People telling me they're Christians because they're good persons. And this is everywhere. Don't let that happen to this church. When you hear things like that, cut it off. Rebuke the man or the sister that they're saying things like that. A little living lumps the, what is it, living's the whole lump? Something like that? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, the greatest gift, the greatest blessing is communion with God, fellowship with God, friendship with God. The greatest blessing of the gospel is God. You get God. And I heard a preacher saying this before, but when I study this, this verse, and then I notice it. Wait a minute. I get God? I begin to weep. And they say, how a sinner like me can have God? And sometimes we, we just think, we know things in our minds. But our hearts don't really feel it. It happened to me. I, I, I remember meeting a corner bakery with, with, with Dustin. He taught me the, the parable of the sower. I don't know if you remember this, brother. And, and there you see different grounds, right? And then you see a, a seed. A seed is toasting in every single ground. And then Dustin asked me, what do you think is the seed? And I said, the gospel. Of course, the gospel. I was very proud, and I think he, he, was, uh, he was surprised. Wow, yeah, it is the gospel. I went back home, and I rewrite everything that he taught me in a piece of paper. I put it very nicely. And then I'm writing down, the seed is the gospel. I said, wait a minute, the seed is the gospel. What people need is the gospel to be saved. And I was so excited that I called him, but he didn't answer his phone. 
I called my mother, Roland, and I said, I, I called Joe and said, Joe, listen to me, listen to me. That's it, it's the gospel, man. We need to give people the gospel. I was like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you this the whole time. I was like, you see, there are, there are times that we can, we can say things in our minds, but our hearts are not engaged with the truth. Do you understand that you get God? You can have fellowship with God, the creator of the universe, the immortal one, the pure one. You can have communion with him. This is why the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is He your portion, Christian? Is He your portion? With Him, do you have everything? Do you want Him? Do you want Him? Even if you have everything or have nothing, do you want Him or are you satisfied with God? With God and Him alone. Listen to me. If you have God, if you have God, you don't need the world to make you happy. Nor fear that this world can make you miserable. You don't need this world to make you happy. This world can take everything. The, the, the ungodly can take this world. It's fleeting pleasures. Take everything, but give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. When the hard times come, the pains and suffering, and maybe soon persecution, if you stand up for the truth, remember this, you have God. And I think that's what these people were thinking about when they were being murdered. I have God. I don't need anything in this world. I have Him, and I'm going to be with Him, finally. Finally. You see, brothers and sisters, if you have God, you have everything. And that's what Christ gives you. We have seen the sufficiency, the reason, the nature, and the achievement of his suffering. Let's look at our last heading. The reward for his suffering. Being put to death in the flesh, says Peter, but made alive in the spirit. In the, spirit. the first part of this statement is very simple to understand. Jesus was put to death. He didn't appear to be dead or dead. He didn't pass out. He didn't fall asleep. No, he really died. He was dead. He left this world. They didn't just kill him. They brutally, brutally kill him. But he was made alive in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? I had to read a lot to try to understand the meaning of that. And there are at least 170 different interpretations. I'm not kidding. So what I believe, it might be the truth or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm not going to defend it in a dogmatic way. I might be wrong. But first of all, let me tell you what Peter is saying at his face value. Okay? He's, saying, he's contrasting the death of Christ with his suffering. That is very clear there, right? Jesus was put to death, but he was made alive. Everybody is in agreement here. Yes, this is the contrasting of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But what does it mean that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit? Some people say that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, meaning men put him to death, but the Holy Spirit rose him from the dead, made him alive. 
Other people say that spirit here is a reference to his human spirit. That his, that, that his human spirit received power from high. Other people say that spirit here is a reference to Jesus' divinity. Meaning that his divinity is what brought him to life. And other people like me, and I am correct when I say this, I think, we believe that, that here is a reference to a spiritual resurrection. That Christ was raised from the dead into a new sphere, into a new existence. He was brought to life to live now as the God-man in His fullness. He was raised in power of His glorified nature. Jesus' resurrection didn't simply overcome His physical death. He was raised in power to have dominion and authority over all things. Jesus said in John 12, 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, a reference to his resurrection, I will draw all people to myself. Notice, when is he going to draw all people to himself? Meaning save his people after his resurrection. Could he have done it before? I mean, he is God. You remember the, the Gospel of Matthew toward the end, Jesus said to his disciples before his ascension, all authority was given to me, and because all authority was given to me, now you can go and preach the gospel, and my people will hear the gospel and come forward. You see what's happening here. Jesus' resurrection didn't just accomplish a physical resurrection, but gave him power from high. So he was brought into a, a different sphere. A different type of living where the Spirit of God operates. And because He's in that sphere, now He can bring everybody to Himself with the power that God has given Him. What's the point here? What appeared to be an act of weakness, Christ's suffering, was the means by which our Lord Jesus obtained an overwhelming victory over His enemies. Satan was probably very happy in all the demons in hell. Wow, he finally died. We got it. And hell broke loose. And they're having a big party. They're drinking and celebrating. But on the third day, they heard the angels coming down. They heard the stone roll away. And Satan sent, said to one of his demons, Go check. I don't know what's happening out there. He goes out there. And he sees the stone roll away. And Jesus resurrected in power. He's shaking. And he's go back. he goes back to hell. He said, he's alive. He's alive. He be they begin to worship. He's alive. He's alive. Just like when we sing. He's alive. He's alive. They were saying, he's alive now. They knew they were in trouble. Jesus arose from the dead now to bring all his people to himself. It seemed like it was weakness, huh? but it wasn't weakness. That was his power. That's, where, that's why those Christians can suffer, because they know that their suffering means victory. Victory. I heard once a guy recently, he said that Christianity is a religion for weak people. I was so upset. I said, how dare you call me weak? 
you know, weak. Then I studied this and I realized, man, he was right. I'm weak. Before the eyes of the world, I'm weak. But in my Lord, I'm powerful. In my Lord, I'm powerful. Our dead brothers and sisters, it's just a door that will take us to God. And soon our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. His suffering was the means by which he obtained power from high. Philippians 2, 8, 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross, he humbled himself. Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It seemed like he was weak. But he is now sitting at the right hand of God with power. And has, he has dominion over all things. Paul tells us that at the last day, Jesus would put the head of Satan under our feet. And I rejoice on that. Christ is going to come back, and brothers and sisters, a lamb is not coming back. A lion. And I love the picture. A mighty warrior, like a Viking, riding on his horse and a big old sword. Man, I love that. I don't want red Jesus. I want a mighty warrior. That's my Jesus. He's coming back, and he's going to slay his enemies. He's going to stain his garments with their blood. It's going to be bloody. And you know what? We're going to be there cheering for him. We're going to go to battle with him. And I can go to battle because my, the captain of my salvation, he's right there in front, leading his troops. Lord, brothers, we are the militant church. We're the militant church. May the gospel give you power. May the gospel, gospel, gospel make you strong. As I close, and if I close, I want to say some words to those who haven't trust Christ, that are not Christians, that are with us today. The gospel has been preached to you. What are you going to do about it? God demands an answer from you. Are you going to turn your back? What are you going to do? Tell, tell, tell me, friend, what is holding you from coming to Him? What is holding you from coming to Him? Is it this world? Let me tell you something. This world is passing away. This, this world is going to be burned. What is holding you back, your friends? Let me tell you something. Your friends don't love you. They don't want the best for you. Otherwise, they will say, go and trust Jesus. That's the best thing you can do. But they don't love you. What is it? Your family? Brothers? Sisters? Parents? You can have a lot of those here in this church. What is holding you back? I tremble for you. The last day is going to be terrible. So trust in Christ. Come to Him. He's waiting for you with open arms. Throw yourself at His feet and beg Him for mercy. Beg Him. Ask Him to forgive you. And to you, Grace Community Church. Preach the gospel to yourself. But go deeper. Don't just think about his death. There is more to it. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. And remember that the gospel is not the first step to the stairway that leads us to heaven. No, it's the whole stairway. You will never grow out of the gospel. Learn it. Grow in it. Take a hold of it. And you desire the same thing that the Paul desired the most. To know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray.